Welcome to the Publisher's Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes or so, I'll bring you up to date on selections from important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our August 2013 issue. You will hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. Interest has recently surfaced in mindfulness meditation as a strategy for treating anxiety disorders. Unfortunately, many studies have had methodological problems, such as the lack of an active comparator group. A randomized controlled trial supported by the National Institutes of Health compared a mindfulness-based stress reduction program with an active control for treating generalized anxiety disorder. For eight weeks, subjects received a group intervention with the mindfulness-based program or a controlled condition called stress management education. Compared with stress management education, the mindfulness-based program was associated with a significantly greater reduction in anxiety, as measured by the clinical global impressions, severity of illness, and improvement scales and the Beck Anxiety Inventory, but not the Hamilton Anxiety Rating Scale. The mindfulness program was also associated with greater reductions in anxiety and distress ratings after a laboratory stress challenge and with a greater increase in positive self-statements, suggesting that the program increased positive self-evaluation as well as decreasing anxiety. Clinicians often have patients who ask them about their odds of developing alcohol use disorder when they have a father or mother or both parents with alcohol problems. Previous studies have indicated that parental alcohol use disorder increases the risk for the disorder in offspring. To help further understand the relationship between parental and offspring alcohol use disorders, Investigators examine the prevalence and odds of offspring developing alcohol use disorder based on the number of parents with the disorder. The study is unique in that it is the first known study to use a population-based national sample. The authors found that in a sample including over 40,000 adults in the United States, 22% had at least one biological parent with alcohol use disorder. Compared to offspring whose parents did not have alcohol use disorder, those whose parents did have the disorder were 2.5 times more likely to have lifetime alcohol use disorder, and those that had both parents with the disorder were 4.4 times more likely to have lifetime alcohol use disorder. The investigators also found that female offspring were more vulnerable to the impact of parental alcohol use disorder than male offspring. The authors conclude that clinicians can play an active role in educating individuals with parental alcohol use disorder, providing resources and discussing prevention and intervention to reduce other risk factors of alcohol use disorder. Current treatment strategies for major depressive disorder do not sufficiently meet the needs of the treatment community. 
as most individuals receiving antidepressant monotherapy do not achieve full remission of depressive symptoms. Augmentation therapy may offer clinical benefit in those who do not achieve full remission with antidepressant monotherapy. In the current proof-of-concept study, the efficacy and safety of lisdexamphetamine, an amphetamine pro-drug, as augmentation therapy were assessed in individuals with major depressive disorder and a suboptimal response to escitalopram monotherapy. The study, which was funded by Shire, included adults with non-psychotic major depressive disorder and residual depressive symptoms after eight weeks of open-label escitalopram monotherapy. Participants were randomized into six weeks of lisdexamphetamine or placebo augmentation. In individuals not achieving remission with escitalopram monotherapy, lisdexamphetamine produced greater reductions in depressive symptoms than placebo. Overall, lisdexamphetamine augmentation was well tolerated. The most frequent treatment-emergent adverse events associated with lisdexamphetamine augmentation were dry mouth and headache, which were both observed in more than 10% of randomized study participants. Vital sign changes in those receiving lisdexamphetamine were generally small. The authors note that additional studies are required to further support these findings. Alzheimer's disease is more than a disease affecting cognition. Many patients with Alzheimer's suffer from neuropsychiatric symptoms as well. One of the most common of these is apathy, in which the patient loses interest and motivation without feeling sad or depressed. Apathy affects Alzheimer's patients' ability to function and increases caregiver distress. Apathy in Alzheimer's may be due to decreased dopamine neurotransmission in the brain, and for this reason, the authors tested the effect of methylphenidate on apathy in Alzheimer's. Rosenberg and colleagues performed a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial of methylphenidate at 20 milligrams daily for six weeks in 60 patients with Alzheimer's disease and apathy, as defined on the neuropsychiatric inventory. 57 of these 60 patients completed the trial. Methylphenidate was very well tolerated. The only noteworthy adverse events were mildly increased anxiety and mild weight loss of less than 2%. More importantly, methylphenidate improved apathy symptoms significantly on two of three outcomes and non-significantly on a third outcome. Given these clinical improvements and the benign safety profile, clinicians may wish to consider methylphenidate therapy for treating apathy in Alzheimer's disease, although further studies are warranted, particularly to determine whether the benefits are long-lasting. Attention deficit hyperactivity disorder is one of the most common neuropsychiatric disorders in childhood, affecting about 5% of all children worldwide. The first-line treatment for moderately severe to severe ADHD is medication. 
However, there is growing interest in non-pharmacologic treatment options, among which is EEG neurofeedback. In past decades, EEG neurofeedback was regarded as a promising alternative to treat children with ADHD, but this consideration was generally based on small studies with serious methodological limitations. Recent randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled studies questioned the efficacy of EEG neurofeedback as a treatment option in ADHD since their results showed no superiority in efficacy compared to placebo neurofeedback. The present randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled study funded by the Netherlands Organization for Scientific Research, is a valuable addition to the existing placebo-controlled trials because of the use of a larger sample, the use of qualified neurofeedback therapists, the double-blind design, and the selection of only participants with a deviant EEG. The latter made it possible to apply personalized EEG neurofeedback. This trial was unable to find support for the superiority of EEG neurofeedback over placebo neurofeedback in improving symptoms of ADHD in children. Also, general functioning was not improved following EEG neurofeedback. No adverse events were found in either group, indicating no safety risks. Traumatized children often develop problems in their social-emotional development that go well beyond the symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, especially when they experience major disruptions or losses in their relationships with primary caregivers. A new child psychiatric syndrome, developmental trauma disorder, has been formulated to describe the forms of emotional, cognitive, behavioral, relational, physical, and self-identity dysregulation that research has shown to be the after-effects of childhood trauma. The authors of this study, which was funded by the Cummings Foundation, used an internet survey of 472 psychiatry, psychology, social work, counseling, child welfare, and pediatric providers to learn whether practicing clinicians viewed the proposed developmental trauma disorder symptoms as, one, equally clinically important as the symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder and other childhood psychiatric disorders, two, distinct from the symptoms of most other disorders, or three, amenable to existing evidence-based therapeutic treatments. Survey respondents consistently rated the majority of the developmental trauma disorder symptoms as highly important for assessment, diagnosis, and treatment. They also rated most developmental trauma disorder symptoms as distinctive and not adequately treated by the best available child psychiatry therapies. Thus, clinicians internationally and from a variety of professional disciplines recognize a need for a childhood psychiatric diagnosis that incorporates complex forms of dysregulation in order to effectively assess, diagnose, and treat traumatized children and adolescents. 
Anorexia nervosa in girls commonly begins in the teenage years. It is characterized by low body weight, abnormal eating attitudes, body image distortion, and loss of periods with low estrogen levels. Anxiety and depression are commonly associated with anorexia nervosa. Interestingly, animal models have shown that estrogen replacement can reduce anxiety. Also, variations in food intake occur across the menstrual cycle and are most likely related to changing estrogen levels. With these data in mind, investigators designed a study funded by NIH in which they examined the impact of estrogen replacement on anxiety, eating attitudes, and body image perception in teenaged girls with anorexia nervosa. During an 18-month period, the subjects were randomized into one of two groups. The first group received replacement doses of estrogen administered as the estrogen patch applied twice weekly with cyclic progesterone pills. The second group received placebo patches and pills. The investigators found that physiologic estrogen replacement caused a significant decrease in the study subject's tendency to experience anxiety, but it did not impact their eating attitudes or body shape perception. Girls in both groups experienced similar weight changes over the duration of the study. Participants with the greatest increases in estrogen levels had the greatest lowering of anxiety proneness scores. The study authors conclude that physiologic estrogen replacement in girls with anorexia nervosa reduces the tendency to experience anxiety but does not affect eating attitudes or body shape perception. New research shows that the atypical antipsychotic aripiprazole may provide relief in children and adolescents with Tourette's disorder. Because of the limitations of other drug choices, a significant unmet need has existed in this patient population. Previous studies have demonstrated aripiprazole's ability to produce safe and efficacious results in the treatment of Tourette's disorder. In the current study, which was sponsored by Otsuka, the authors conducted a 10-week, multi-centered, double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trial in children and adolescents with Tourette's disorder with moderate tick severity. The subjects were randomly assigned to placebo or aripiprazole. 86% of 61 subjects completed the study. Patients who received aripiprazole compared to those who received placebo demonstrated a significant reduction in a clinical measure of tick severity from baseline to end of study. Response rates on a clinical measure of illness improvement were 66% and 45% in the aripiprazole and placebo groups, respectively. Subjects in the aripiprazole group saw a greater improvement than those in the placebo group on a clinical measure of illness severity. In general, aripiprazole was well tolerated and there were no early discontinuations due to adverse events. The incidence rate of treatment emergent adverse events between groups was not significantly different. While aripiprazole decreased serum prolactin concentration, it increased mean body weight, body mass index, and waist circumference, 
Thus, metabolic side effects should be monitored in long-term use. The authors conclude that, in comparison with placebo, aripiprazole was efficacious and generally well-tolerated and safe in the short-term treatment of children and adolescents with Tourette's disorder. This month's ASCP Corner Offering looks at the use of intravenous scopolamine in depression. It has been shown to produce antidepressant effects within 72 hours in depressed unipolar and bipolar patients. With regard to widespread clinical practice, however, safety remains an important concern. The authors discuss the recent evidence and the potential for scopolamine in treating depression, including directions for future research. As discussed in this month's Practical Psychopharmacology column, levothyroxine, or T4, supplementation may be used in various psychiatric contexts, and clinicians should be aware of factors that affect its absorption. For instance, certain drugs and disorders associated with decreased gastric acidity can impair the absorption of T4. If a patient is consistently using T4 in a manner that is against clinical guidance and decreases its absorption, the clinician may be able to adjust the T4 dose to account for this. Visit us online at psychiatrist.com to read Dr. Andrade's column and participate in the discussion. Whether cognitive deficits are attributable to core mood symptoms or instead have a separate evolution, prognosis, and impact on functional status in mood disorders is currently unresolved. Vinberg and colleagues set out to investigate whether cognitive function in a healthy, never-depressed cohort of twins at heritable risk can predict the onset of affective disorder. In a study funded by the Danish Council for Independent Research and the Lundbeck Foundation, these researchers compared a high-risk cohort of twins who had a co-twin history of affective disorder with a low-risk cohort of twins who had no history of affective disorder. The study participants were assessed at baseline using a standard psychiatric interview and rating scales for depression to ensure that they were free of psychiatric disorder. They were further examined using a cognitive test battery. Participants were followed longitudinally at six-month intervals for up to nine years and were finally reassessed with a personal interview to obtain information on whether they had developed psychiatric illness. Of the original 234 participants, 218 completed the personal interview at follow-up assessment. A total of 36 participants, comprising 15% of the study population, developed psychiatric disorder, mainly affective and anxiety disorders. Subsequent onset of illness was predicted by lower scores on cognitive tests that measured executive function and baseline, and also by lower scores on cognitive tests that measured attention and language at baseline. In healthy individuals at risk for affective disorders, lower cognitive performance seems to predict subsequent psychiatric illness. Based on the present findings, it is possible that cognitive impairment, 
not only develops as part of illness progression, but may in fact be present before illness onset. Individuals with serious mental illness have shortened life expectancies relative to the general population to an extent that is not explained by unnatural causes such as suicide or accidents. This may be partially due to the higher rates of illness such as infectious disease, diabetes, respiratory illness, and cardiovascular disease found in this population. Additionally, medical care for individuals with serious mental illness is not provided in concordance with current guidelines, and there is significant room for improvement in the delivery of medical care to this population. Bradford and colleagues conducted a systematic review evaluating models of care that integrate medical and mental health services to improve general medical outcomes in individuals with serious mental illness. Four good quality randomized controlled trials were found that compared integrated care models with usual care. Two of the studies evaluated process of care and demonstrated increased rates of immunization and screening associated with the integrated care interventions. All four of the studies evaluated changes in physical functioning with mixed results. Two showed improved physical functioning associated with integrative care and two showed no difference. None of the studies reported on clinical outcomes. These findings highlight improvements in process of care associated with models that integrate medical and mental health care. Further studies are needed to evaluate the effects of these care models on physical functioning and clinical outcomes. This study was funded by the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. In closing, be sure to visit us online for letters, book reviews, interactive activities from our CME Institute, and much, much more from the August issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites.